the learning hack is supported by a new spring, the platform that puts the learner first, shaping journeys that help individuals learn faster and perform better. Access intelligent technology, profound insights and a unique network of like-minded pioneers. And if you're a trainer or training provider looking to succeed in this fast-changing market, their free ebook will show you how putting the learner first is the key to winning. Download it now at anewspring.com slash learnerfirst. That's anewspring.com slash learnerfirst. Yar, it is a fine pleasure for me to welcome aboard this here podcast, Lauren Waldman, on International Talk Like a Pirate Day. She's a learning consultant, she's a neuroscience brain box, and she's a body pirate queen. Yar! Welcome to The Learning Hack, a podcast about the people and technologies that are creating the future of learning. I'm John Helmer. Now, guess what? Learning is learning cool. Is cool. cool. Learning, is cool. Learning, is cool. learning is cool. I'm learning. Learning is fun. And knowledge is power. Knowledge is cash. Last time on The Hack, we had an L&D detective. This time, it's a learning pirate. What is it with these colourful personas? Obviously, we love them at The Learning Hack because they provide an excuse for dress-up. But what do they tell us about the business of learning? Is it a need to break free of the rather staid, formulaic narratives that dominate organisational life? In the case of Lauren Waldman, who styles herself as the learning pirate, it seems to summon up a rather freebooting, anarchic image that some might feel is slightly at odds with her serious chops as an advocate of neuroscience, not to mention her crusades against the dissemination of learning myths which have a distinctly moral edge. Kate Fitzgerald, Head of Fact, tell us more about Lauren. Hack Facts. Lauren Waldman is a learning consultant, educator and the founder of The Learning Pirate. She works with organisations to create bespoke scientifically designed learning programmes using the latest cognitive and behavioural science. She is a certified training and development professional and has received qualifications in neuroscience from Harvard and John Hopkins University and in medical neuroscience from Duke. She is also an advisory board member of the National Communication Coaching Association of Canada. There's been a recent spate of books about pirates and pirate queens that portray piracy in terms of diverse communities with surprisingly egalitarian working practices where women could take leadership roles. These books include not only works of popular storytelling, but also serious stuff such as Pirate Enlightenment, David Graeber's posthumously published study centred on land-based pirate communities in Madagascar. So maybe the pirate theme is not entirely jokey. I quizzed Lauren about the pirate code, but the bulk of our discussion was really about how she brings the influence of neuroscience to bear on her practice. Neuroscience made vast leaps in the first two decades of this century, making it something of a new science. But for that reason, I wanted to know, does it sometimes come into conflict with the learning theory of past ages? Lauren Waldman, yar. <laughs> yar. Don't, don't use the right form of piratical address there. You, you might have to school me on it. Yeah, no, you most certainly, you, you most certainly did. You are really ready, as the as the yar stands for. <laughs> so you're ready, yeah. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast, and welcome aboard the good ship 
Ack. Oh, thank you. Dear Captain John. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Lewis and all that. Yep. So you bill yourself as the learning pirate, and there's something I've always wanted to ask you. Um, the pirate code, is it a list of rules you have to follow to have L&D success, or is it more a set of guidelines? Oh, well, you know, any good pirate will tell you it's a set of guidelines. <laughs> Although the pirate code and the original pirate rules were pretty were pretty strict, but uh, I'd say for the purposes of, of L&D success, I think they're reacting as more guidelines right now. Um, and I certainly have a few that I, I adhere by in my, in my world of learning and science. Oh. Yeah, so we can get into that uh, in a bit. But I mean, first of all, we ought to, to be slightly serious, the main focus of your work is neuroscience and learning. Mm -hmm. How do you see those two uh, different knowledge fields, I suppose, operating together in practice? So as a learning, I mean, not learning professionals wouldn't necessarily no, have known that much about neuroscience. Um, and it's made huge strides in the last couple of decades. Um, and now maybe they feel they do. I, mean, I think you probably certainly do feel that they should know about it. So what skills do learning professionals need to acquire, skills and knowledge, uh, or increase if they've got some already, in order to work effectively um, in this day and age, do you think? You know, I think it's the same question that I had to ask myself when I when I dove into the sciences. Um, and, you know, it was, first of all, how did I not know any of this as a learning professional? If I have to even question, what is the process of learning? Then maybe I should look into that a little bit more. And then where does that process happen? Yes, we are externally taking in stimuli from our environments, but internally, it's our brain that is encoding a memory, which is helping us to you know, then retrieve that memory to transfer into a skill, behavior, and ability. So when we talk about the importance and, and sort of the, the criticality of neuroscience coming into our field, it's within that understanding of, well, what is the thing doing the learning doing? And maybe I should know a little bit about that. And I think in the state that we are in right now and in this day and age, for anyone in learning to not understand at a fundamental level how even themselves as a human operates a little bit better. And then how do we transfer that knowledge into not only learning better, because we all know how to learn, we, we, we would all be dead if we didn't, <laughs> we, we are designed to learn. Um, but then how do we take this knowledge of how my brain is operating to what I call join forces with it in order to be a more efficient and strategic learner? If we're designers, then how do we design more effective learning that is optimized for the way that our brains function? And then just on a general organizational and human level, how do I understand myself better to understand other humans better in any environment? Okay. And is the key to that memory and retaining information or, or is there more to it that neuroscience can tell us? Oh, there's a significant amount more. Um, memory is obviously incredibly critical, you know, for, for me to go into any classroom, um, you know, if I'm working with the academics and the students, or if I go into any organizations um, and ask anybody, is it, can you tell me how, how does your brain form a memory for everything that you're supposed to be learning? And for most to not be able to answer that, which is okay, not everyone studies the brain in neuroscience, but at a very foundational level, it is something that we do need to know, but it's only the scratch of the surface. Hmm. So, to what level do you think L&D people particularly should immerse themselves in, in neuroscience? Do you think they should all go off and get PhDs in neuroscience? Or uh, do, you, do you think a kind of uh, BA degree will do it? Or maybe just a, a couple of courses? What, you know, how much they really need to know? 
I I definitely discourage my colleagues to go far as far down the rabbit hole as I have. <laughs> it's it, it's a very it's a very deep hole, um, and they don't need to go too far down. I think where we have a gap between science itself and the sort of organizational world is how do we practice? And that's a gap that the scientists face, right? They're in the labs, they're doing the research, their their professional careers are are spent helping us to get this knowledge, but then the knowledge has to be translated into a practical application that we can all use and learn. So when it comes to us as L&D people, it's a very foundational level of knowledge. So whereas I understand now very deeply um, you know, mechanisms of the brain, neurochemistry of the brain, what's being activated, what's working with what, when it comes to our applying that to the, to the field of L and D, it's more like, okay, can we learn at a very foundational level? How does the brain create a memory? What kind of memories are there? Um, you know, when we are looking at facilitating a conversation, when we're looking at designing learning, focus and attention are absolutely critical to helping the person to use the resources that they've got in their brain in order to learn. So how do we activate those? And those are some you know, very surface level things that we can all learn very quickly and then we can transfer into the work and, and the interactions that we have on a daily basis. So um, is there a danger? I mean, you say a foundational level of knowledge, but is there this danger that, you know, a little learning is a dangerous thing? I mean, mm-hmm. you do hear some people kind of, they start to throw around terms like, I don't know, endorphins and cortisol and mm-hmm. uh, synapses and micellin sheaths and things. And very often you get the, the 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 impression they picked up a few terms, but they, 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 there seems to be a lack of nuance in what they're saying. Is, is that a big danger, do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and that's why I think in, in previous interviews and part of the advocacy that I do is for the credibility and the validity of the science that we are using. And that requires deep knowledge and deep dedication to the research and to the translation of it. Um, and I think it's very easy to see who those people are who have picked up, uh, you know, the Neuroscience for Dummies book and, and then just tries to translate. And by the way, Neuroscience for Dummies is actually a, a great book. <laughs> but, um, the, the Dummies books are really good. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but to your point, there there absolutely is uh, a danger in in someone using these terms to make it seem as if they know something. But then can they actually put it into practical application and practice, which is where most people fail? What part does learning theory play in, in all this as well? Because um, neuroscience is fairly recent science, or, or at least it's it's taken leaps and bounds, as I say, in the last couple of decades, having been a bit mm. quiet in the years before that. Um, if you go uh, previous to the 21st century, um, experimental psychology might might seem to be more important and you know cognitivist and behaviorist and so on. So we have this kind of wealth of learning theory, um, two and a half thousand years, in fact, since the the, the Greeks, as we cover in my sister podcast, I have to say, great minds of learning. And and that is kind of there, and learning people feel they have to kind of know a bit about that. And then along mm-hmm. comes neuroscience. Now it's it's a more recent development. Is, are there conflicts there? Um, mm. Do the two things sit comfortably together in in your view, or do they sometimes fight? I mean, well, well, you know, kind of uh, insights from cognitivists 
uh, conflicts with what neuroscience tells us, uh, for instance? They definitely do fight um, on on the outside, but I see and I've experienced and I've learned myself as you know a scientific learning designer, which is how do we harmonize the two? Because as you as you, as you, you know pointed out, the psychology has been around for a greater amount of time than the neuroscience has, and because of that, I think we have sort of created our own cognitive biases of what is right and what is wrong. But even when you look at you know. Look at cognitive learning theory. Cognitive learning theory is all about the way that people think. And at the basic level, that theory suggests that our internal thoughts and external forces are both important. But what actually is cognition for the brain? And how do we work within that and the underlying mechanisms of cognition to enhance the way that we learn? Um, we can look at uh, behavioral, behavioral learning theory as well, again, based in psychology. But now that we've got neuroscience, we understand what are some of the underlying neural mechanisms, the neurochemistries that actually create behavior and stimulate motivation and how do we activate it and, and use those. So I feel that there is a great opportunity to harmonize the two because one influences the other. Is it at all useful to, I mean, can you draw a distinction between what's biological and what's cultural when you look at these things so obviously from a neuroscience type of lens certain things are are their biology they're, they're kind of chemicals their mm -hmm. structure of the brain and so on uh, a psychologist comes to this with something which is cultural you know the way the way that we are kind of the 50 percent of um of us that comes about through the the way that we are reared and educated rather than mm. you know there's that kind of 50-50 heuristic, is that a useful distinction in, in kind of harmonizing the two things, the two fields? I think it has a, a definite element. I think all of it is part of the whole ecosystem of not only how we are as an individual human being, but then it obviously influences the way that we learn. And when we look at you know the work of Carol Dweck, the growth, growth versus fixed mindset, we saw how environment played a, and culture played a very intricate role in someone's developmental processes. But I think what the general public and especially people in learning development sort of had a hard time wrapping their heads around is because they haven't been exposed to the fact that there are very, you know, very intrinsic underlying things that are happening in our system, in our brains, in our bodies that are supporting everything that is externalized. And I think it's because of the fact that they have been exposed for such a great amount of time to learning theory and from the side of psychology that getting neuroscience and wrapping you know, your head around, you know, pun intended, the fact that everything that we do, everything that we do from breathing, thinking, walking, eating, smelling, touching, all of it is because of something that is happening in our brains that's producing it. Okay, so the neuroscience is fundamental, um, underlying, mm. uh, did, whereas the cultural stuff is perhaps slightly more. Does that mean it's more changeable? Is the neuroscience kind of like, look, you're not going to change this. This is just the way the brain is because it's chemistry and it's biology, whereas the cultural stuff, maybe we can kind of unlearn some of, some of that stuff. Is neuroscience really fixed? 
No, not at all. I mean, the beauty about our brains is the plasticity of them and our abilities to continually change and develop and and manipulate and, you know, even destruction (laughs) within our brains when it comes to, you know, as we get older, we know that we we actually degenerate. There's going to be parts of our, our brains that are starting to degenerate a little bit. And I think there's other parts that elevate at times a very clear understanding of how plasticity works, I think, is when we look at stroke patients. And we see miraculous recoveries when one part of the brain is able to restructure itself and rewire and re-network in order to support the function that was lost. And we see this in case studies all across neuroscience. And once you understand the extreme abilities within, the things that we can't see, we can't see, we can't just look into our own brains and see networks forming, and we can't see the electricity and we can't see the chemistry happening, but it is happening. And because of that, it is that malleability that allows us to change, but it does take time and it does take effort. Having talked about, about the serious, your serious field of study, and I, I want to sort of come back to the, to the piracy, which we've dealt with in a, <laughs> in a lighthearted way, but I wonder if there's a serious side to that. I, you know, you've had a bit of fun with that as a hook uh, and it's part of your brand, but are there serious points in there? Do you have you studied the history of piracy? I'd say this because, you know, I've I've come across um, theorists of the internet and so on. I think, you know, about five six years ago, there was a there was a book that came out called "Be More Pirate," which was for entrepreneurs, and it 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 it, it sort of drew on the history of piracy. And more recently, we've seen in decolonizing history, um, people have taken a different view of pirate uh, communities um, in Madagascar and, and so on, which, which, which was sort of kind of out, outside the imperial powers and the East India Company and so on, and perhaps the only place you could go if you were out, out, outside of that culture. Uh, sorry, long-winded question. Is there a serious side to the piracy thing? I think there is. You know, I, I think we often think of pirates as the movie versions, right? The, the Captain Jack Sparrows and, you know, drunk, a little bit brutish and entertaining. But when you look at the history of pirates and, you know, most of them were just ordinary people who had been forced to turn to criminal activity to make ends meet. Mm. When you look at the history of, of how these happen, and I love them, you know, that there are some historians who describe sort of pirate ships as the original republics, right? Like pirates had, the pirates, uh, excuse me, the captains had to be elected. And all the decisions were really based upon what benefited the crew, what benefited the greater good. And it's interesting because when you look at back in the day, what were they actually stealing? Yes, they they were going after the gold and, and the gems and whatnot. But the thing that was really most valuable to them were necessities of life, flour, medicine. Um, those were really the treasures that they were after. What I find amazing when it comes to when I looked into the history of pirates. Um, I was really interested to know who were the female pirates mm. and what role did they play? And there were some absolute, uh, you know, if I can say, but pretty kick-ass <laughs> female pirates. Pirate queens, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, I think, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this right, but it's, it's Chen, Chen Yi Sao um, was one of the greatest, most successful pirates. And she ran like this massive, massive uh, fleet after her husband passed and she dominated the seas for quite some time until I, I believe the story goes that um, the 
I think everybody was after her, but I think it was finally the the British who got her. And she said, well, I'll just give it all up if you just let me keep what I've got. <laughs> I'll stop doing this. And she went on, she, she went to run a, a gambling house, you know, until she died. <laughs> so, uh, that was pretty, that was pretty impressive. Grace O'Malley, uh, she had 20, 20 ship fleet that stood up against the British monarchies. It was, you know, these powerful women leaders back in the day as well, which I thought was pretty cool. <gasps> yeah. So there's perhaps a better gender balance and clearly no glass ceiling. <laughs> what other lessons can L&D take from the, the, the history of piracy? I should say that I've got an even more, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean is most people's cultural reference. Being old, I've got another one, which is there was a BBC um, TV programme called Captain Pugwash, and <laughs> which is sort of a, an animated cartoon. I mean, it, it isn't really an animated cartoon. It was incredibly um, primitive. It was... Um, bits of paper being moved around and you know someone would kind of pull a stick for the jaw to move and things like <laughs> that and it had a very jaunty tune but you know old people will remember that but young people would just be going what <laughs> what should D people take from the history of piracy what i would like to see more do is to voice the opinions of what is needed and then take action. One thing about pirates is that they didn't sit around and have, you know, days long meetings about what to do. They had an agenda and they executed that agenda. And I think this is something that we as the as a profession as an industry right now, I think this is something that we we definitely need to embody, which is there are several conversations happening all around the world in learning and development about what's not happening and how we're not doing things as best as we can. And as a result of that, this past couple of years, um, and especially this last year in North America, I can speak to um, my colleagues in Australia have reported back, I, I believe it's starting now to happen in the UK as well, is we're seeing entire teams be made redundant. Mm -hmm. They're being let go. And the only way that we're going to stop that bleed is to start to more strongly voice and prove and demonstrate the values that we bring as people who support learning a fundamental practice in any organization and in just in life in general we need to start voicing it but we also have to start taking different actions because the actions that we have taken for the last you know 50 years we're still in that we, we might have added some technology and you know technology might have given us some advancements but we're fundamentally doing things the same way and it's got to change the learning hack podcast is supported by learning news the learning sector's newswire rob and his team are good friends of the podcast and we really value the help and advice we've had from them and they do a great job the very latest news from around the learning sector, for interviews with learning leaders, the latest from learning sector vendors and features on workplace learning, go to learningnews.com. Tell us about your latest venture in um, bringing this about, supporting L&D in, in doing that, uh, which is joining forces with your brain. My masterpiece, or my symphony, as I like to call it. Uh, joining forces with your brain is an interactive, scientifically designed learning series. I don't like to call it a course. I think course is a dirty word. <laughs> um, this is a journey that I am taking people on to help them to understand at that fundamental level, like we were speaking about, 
how does my brain work? How does that operate? And then how do I learn better with all of the strategies and practices and ways, you know, whether it be, we're, I think we're, we're starting to dive into learning theory um, once we start filming again. But it's really was my way, not only just for the learning development industry, but for, uh, for our global population to start understanding a little bit more about how do we operate? What is your brain capable of doing? And how do you join forces with it? Because I think what I learned very early on in my, my studies was there were so many ways that I was working against my own brain. I was working against the operational system. And when you learn how to join forces with it, whether that be to understand how do I create a, a stronger memory for transfer, or what does it really mean to change my behavior in a strategic and intentional way and work with that underlying chemistry in my brain that's going to help me do that? Or, you know, I could go on focus and attention, like I mentioned earlier. Focus is a skill, and focus is a skill that we can get better at. But it also does require you to know well, what is attention? Because attention is not the same as focus. Attention is the mechanism for focus. So the series was created not only to educate, but to insert practices within it. So you are developing the skill of focus and attention. You're developing the skill of memory and you're understanding how to harmonize this with your everyday work and your everyday world. It's fascinating. I'm getting really interested in this because I, I had terrible problems with attention. You know, I, I map out the day and say, well, I'm going to do this edit in this uh, half day period. And then I find I don't want to do that. I want to listen to this podcast. Mm. I want to, you know, I, I want to play computer patience for half an hour, <laughs> the radio, whatever. Uh, and, I, and then five o'clock in the morning, I suddenly that, oh, yes, now I want to do that edit. That, that, now that's peculiar, isn't it? I mean, do I have a, do I have a condition or is, or, or is this just a manifestation of how we are not joining forces with our brains? I think the general thing. I think a lot of people are experiencing the same thing. Um, you know, as, as beautiful and wonderful as technology helps us, it's also hurting us. And that needs to be addressed. We've seen, you know, behaviors have changed. The brain hasn't changed itself. It's our behaviors towards what we're doing, which have changed. And we can certainly join forces with that. And we can certainly harness that. But there, there needs to be an awareness of that, that, that that's even happening in the moments. In joining forces in the series, we talk about metacognition. We don't even, we don't just talk about metacognition and your ability to, you know, sort of get a handle on your cognitive processes. But when we look at the, the metacognitive theory, it's being able to be aware of what you're doing, what you're thinking, how you're feeling in the moment and being able to shift faster so that if you do realize wait a second, I've been on YouTube looking at cat videos <laughs> for now it's been 30 minutes. Well, how do we take that down to 10 minutes? How do we take that 10 minutes down to five minutes? And, but if you don't have an awareness of that, if we're not able to activate that, which most people, they can't, because it does take a lot of cognitive energy, but it also takes a lot of us training us, hmm. then we are missing those opportunities. So I think you know, I'm going to circle back and, and sort of wrap this up when it comes to learning and development is we often want and we often are looking for some type of a behavioral change in learning designs that we do. You know, we'll take it into an organization. They want to see some type of behavioral change or skill or ability. But what the biggest fail that I see is, is that there's 
well, you want a behavior change, but you're neglecting the fact that most people don't even have the abilities to understand how to change a behavior to begin with. So you're putting the cart before the horse. If we empower people with the understanding of, well, what is behavior and what is motivation and how am I going to get in my own way and how can I activate certain parts of not only my neurochemistry, but my strategy in order to make this process much more easier for me to do something that I want to do or accomplish or that my business needs me to do or accomplish. But we very often, John, I see the card is being put before the horse. So we're asking people to do something, but we're not giving the underlying skills first for them to be able to be successful in it. On that subject of attention, are our mm -hmm. attention spans uh, vanishing due to technology? Is it true that we now have shorter attention spans than goldfish? You know, I'd have to look at the the exact research, but from what I saw, especially over the pandemic, it was it was the behaviors. It was more a behavioral um, than the than the attention itself. And I think, again, when you look at the the method, or excuse me, not the method, but the the understanding that if attention is the mechanism to focus, you need attention to focus. And there are multiple attentional networks in the brain. But if attention is the mechanism, excuse me, the mechanism to focus, and this is in joining forces. If you stop at any point of your day and you ask yourself a very simple question, which is, where is my attention? And if my attention is being split between the music playing in the background, multiple tabs open on my laptop, my cell phone and my, my chats there, well, I've got my attention divided, which means my focus is not in one place. It's in multiple places. Hmm. So it's not the te technology, it's it, it's a behavioral thing. That's kind of a trick question about the goldfish because I, I tried to track down that research and couldn't find it at all, which brings us on to myth-busting. Um, <laughs> I know you've done certain amount of fighting, learning, disinformation. I've seen you engage in trying to root out those myths on social media. Uh, it's whack-a-mole, <laughs> you know, especially when it comes to things like learning styles. Do you think that these are battles that can be won or does it just exhaust you trying to put them right? Both. It's incredibly exhausting. Um, but there is a responsibility for us as scientists to, to keep up that fight. Um, there's too many people. I think, you know, we spoke a little bit earlier about those sort of just dropping terminology, you know, the synapses or the myelin sheath or yeah. neuroplasticity. Um, and then, you know, claim to be proficient in, in neuroscience and learning. And then there's people like me who will look at it, and go, wait a second, <laughs> where did you get this off of a fortune cookie or was it in like a, you know, a bubble gum wrapper? Where did you get all this information from? Um, it's incredibly exhausting because there is so much misinformation out there where I think that anyone who's listening can help in that battle is to do their due diligence. Who is the source? And do a little bit of digging. Popularity does not mean accuracy. Mm. So yeah. do a little bit more digging. And the source isn't always that bad. I, I've come across um, it, it, examples of, you know, completely um, erroneous stuff that, that had the badge of a top five consultancy mm -hmm. on it. You know, got a name mm -hmm. names. But one of them begins with D. <laughs> And there, there was a piece that Microsoft picked up, particularly about kind of attention spans and so on. You know, they, they, 
they don't always come from scurrilous places and kind of noble institutions within the uh, within the the professional area of learning uh, have been known to kind of um, echo uh, false information like kind of learning styles and so on as well. Yeah. So one does have to be very careful. In... Well, I mean, I've been incredibly public with my with my takedowns of those larger institutions. Um, two years ago, it was LinkedIn Learning for, mm. for spreading false information through some of their courses. Um, most recently, it was Chief Learning Officer, one of the largest learning publications in North America. And what I've discovered is that they're not validating their content and their, their content providers. And they have nobody on their side of things who could even come close to understanding if it was right or wrong. So they're really, again, the people who I see being published when it comes to the sciences are those, like you said, John, who have held um, public positions and who have made a good reputation for themselves. But when you start digging into the efficacy of their science, which I've done, it's completely inaccurate. And they are not helping this battle at all, um, which is why, you know, I think I said in, in a previous interview, um, I'm very happy to to burn the bridges that I didn't want to stand on in the first place. Yar. <laughs> Yar. <laughs> So which came first, piracy or an interest in learning? How, how did you get into doing what you're doing? How did you first get into the, the, the world of learning? And, and, and then how did you pursue that to where, where you are at the moment? Well, I, as a human, I think the piracy came first. I was up to no good from a very young age. <laughs> so I was such a little adventurous devil. Um, but when it came to uh, the learning I've always, I think even from a young age, I think I've always been an educator. I've always been a teacher. Um, and it just evolved throughout the throughout my career. And, you know, I found myself at a, at a young age uh, as an English teacher in Japan, moved there when I was 19, and just fell in love with teaching in itself. And through that experience, I, you know, I spent several years living in Japan teaching. And through those those years, I sort of just kind of continued up the hierarchy. And I said, hey, how would you like to uh, teach some of the people from BMW Japan and and Tokyo Disneyland and JAL? I said, that'd be wonderful. Let's try that. And so I got exposed to the corporate world of learning. Um, but then when neuroscience came to me many years later, this was just as I, I was uh, CLO as, as a one of the largest tech companies, it was game over because I had to sort of wave my white flag at that point and say, oh my God, I have been educating and teaching and designing and training and facilitating for years now. And not once had I ever thought about the thing doing all of it. And so neuroscience just dominated me after that. And it was my own curiosity that I kept chasing. Um, it was my own experiences going through a very challenging learning endeavor when I started studying the brain itself and understanding as an adult how difficult that could be. That reframed my entire experience and then my entire professional career moving forward. Hmm. So it's interesting in, in your response there that you started off with language learning. Hmm. Um, from a theory point of view, language learning uh, when I was sort of looking at uh, Duolingo recently, um, 
I kind of dipped a toe in this and found that there's a whole load of learning theory, particularly related to language learning, that I knew nothing about. And they, they seem to have different sources and 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 gurus and so on. Could you, it, it, I mean, is that the case? I mean, presumably the neuroscience is equally applicable across mm-hmm. those areas, but what's the learning theory like on, on language learning? It's very interesting when you look at it through the lens of the brain, because we develop our, our language abilities in our native tongues between ages of, of zero and five. And the best time to, to learn second, third languages is sort of in, within that critical period, because essentially with our networks, when they become so strong, once we've got that sort of that language encoded, now what we're doing as an adult, or even, you know, for those of us who studied in high school, I, I had to take French as a Canadian, we're, we're taught French from, from a young age. And then in university, we have to do a secondary language as well. But it's incredibly challenging because you're trying to build new networks to represent this new language, but they exist within the same space as your native tongue. So it's very challenging <laughs> to compete with those networks and to build new ones. And um, I learned Japanese. I'm not fluent in it anymore, but you know, I learned Japanese when I when I moved to Japan. Um, I've tried to pick up little bits of, of languages as I've gone through my travels, but it is a very different sort of part. It, first of all, it's, it's very specific parts of the brain, but when you understand how challenging it is because of how strong those networks are, as we develop our native our native tongues, you understand why it's so so difficult to pick up a new language as we get older. It is probably the first thing we learn. Isn't that language? Mm. Apart from, you know, don't put your hand in the fire and yes. <laughs> adventurousness always being a spur to to learning, I've mm. found. Um, yeah, so so language, there's a kind of primacy to language. So it really is quite a specialized area, language learning. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that, you know, I think about going back and revisiting my my studies in, in Japanese, and I think I could pick it up relatively faster now that I've got at least a foundation, some foundation still in there. Um, but then I look at the other skills that I would have learned when I was younger. And, you know, I used to, I was a classically trained pianist mm. and I haven't sat down at the piano for forever. Uh, I'm like, Oh, how could I use what I know now and design my learning experience to teach myself piano in a whole new way yeah. with the science. Um, and I love to challenge myself like that i taught myself how to juggle using science just for fun i just wanted to see (laughs) if i applied everything that i knew would would i achieve the results that i was looking for in a more efficient manner and i did yeah and i think carl chrysostomo had a who who correct (laughs) we did that together as well yes yeah it's interesting that you know as a musician it's interesting to hear about uh, for me to hear about the, the 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 piano that you you kind of had two cracks at it early and late um you come across this concept called muscle memory with um learning music you know when my band got back together after kind of 10 years part 20 years part um we 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 had to kind of stand in a room and look at each other and work out how we'd played the songs all that time yeah. ago um and what we kept talking about was muscle memory oh yes when i go when we get to this bit suddenly my hands know what to do is, is that a fallacy or I haven't done much research on this, although I want to say 
that I did come across, and I'm not going to remember who it was. I can see her face. I just don't remember her name. A scientist who said that muscle memory wasn't actually a thing. So <laughs> I'd have to, I'd have to validate that. But I mean, memory trace, yes, definitely a thing. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. So we have to close out now, unfortunately. Could talk all afternoon um, or morning in your case. Lastly, in the world of learning, who and what are the sources that you turn to personally for knowledge and inspiration? What are your waterholes, if you like? I mean, all of the scientists whose who's research um, I can possibly get my hands on from, you know, one of Barbara, Barbara Oakley, a engineer and neuroscientist. She was part of my inspiration for joining forces with your brain. Mark A. McDaniel, uh, one of the authors of Make It Stick, who who told me in a in a in a in-person conversation to he said, Lauren, can you tell everyone to stop bastardizing our work? And I said, <laughs> okay, I can I can do that. <laughs> go out, go out and do that. So I greatly admire and follow them. Um, the community leaders in our industry, those who are really bringing people to learn and to share knowledge. Um, so I'll give a shout out to the LD Shakers and to the Offbeat community and to the GLDC and the Learning Network and and all of these gorgeous communities globally, um, to our to our new leaders as well, um, Dr. Keith Keating, Helen Marshall, Kathy Hoy, those who are trying to reframe leadership and what it means to be a CLO. And um, I would definitely be remiss if I didn't mention every single one of my board members who who helped me to continually learn and be a better scientist and designer. Um, you can. You know, Dr. Celine Mullins, Dr. Nick Hobson, Dr. Chris Lee, Elliot Jardin, uh, they're all up there. And podcast hosts like you, Ugh. John, of course. Yeah. I mean, the podcast hosts who who give us the the reach and the platform and the audience and then get to spread that knowledge. I learn from, from everyone. Well, it's a joy to talk to those people and it's been a real joy to talk to you today. Thank you very much, Lauren. Thank you. Likewise. That's all on the Learning Hack podcast for this time. Many thanks to our guests and to our sponsors. The Learning Hack is completely independent and transparently funded by sponsorship. If you want to help others find us, please like, follow, rate, review and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice or on YouTube. Next time, we look at the Nordics. I'll be talking to the CEO of Valamis, UC Hurskainen, who has built a global learning systems business from his base in Finland. Until then, stay curious, learning people.